Hello again, and welcome to the Street Photography Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Bob Patterson, publisher of Street Photography Magazine, and this is the place for inspiration and advice by street photographers for street photographers. And I want to start out by thanking you once again for taking your valuable time and spending with us today. Um, And if you like what you hear, please take a few moments to go over to iTunes and subscribe on iTunes. Even if you listen some other way, that really helps uh, build our audience and helps uh, improve our ratings, which enables us to bring you more good street photography content. And while you're there, make sure to leave us a five-star review because that is super helpful. If you want to leave anything less than five stars, send me an email and let me know what we can do better. And today, well, as I said earlier in the intro, we talked about inspiration and advice. And uh, speaking of that, our guest today has helped thousands of photographers, probably tens of thousands of photographers with inspiration. And uh, so our guest today is Craig Strong. He is the, well, he's a former photojournalist and professional photographer, and he's the founder and the chief creative officer of Lens Baby. So, Craig, thanks for being with us today. Hi, Bob. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad to have you. I've been actually been wanting to talk to you for for quite a while. Um, I have a high level of interest in your product, which we're going to talk about. So, Craig, I'd like to start out by asking you a little bit about yourself. You have a very interesting journey in life, going from being a photojournalist to the founder and creator of these very ingenious lenses. So how did that happen? Yeah, it was kind of a circuitous route getting there, but um, but here we are. So yeah, if I look back on my career, um, I, I started shooting pictures in eighth grade and really inspired, my inspiration came from National Geographic. We had, you know, eight feet of them on our, our living room, um, bookshelf and I would go through and just spend time. I was the youngest of five kids by 10 years was the shortest gap. And so I spent a lot of my time being, um, you know, kind of staying out of the fray when I was real young and then having a lot of time alone. And, and I remember gravitating toward the national geographics. Um, and so for me, that was that set the stage for the kind of photography that I wanted to do when I did get a camera uh, for graduation from eighth grade. And um, and that was my goal. And I, I interviewed with National Geographic to, to work with them and had a game plan for for the the. I was at a weekly paper at the time and had had worked at dailies in college for for internships and I had a whole game plan of getting there, uh, but it was all about being a fly on the wall, making perfect images, having pretty much no style in terms of of anything that wasn't uh, a traditional edge to edge sharpness as sharp as you could get with um, you know I mean there weren't effects that that I was striving for. Uh, as a photojournalist, but uh, after working as a freelance photographer for almost ten years, I guess eight years, um, I I got my first digital SLR, and and some of the things that I'd been exposed to by fine art photographers that I'd shared studios with, um, that I'd like to do, that 
that really was not in my wheelhouse at all. Uh, a lot of those more artistic images started to be like, okay, well, I could I could play. I could start experimenting with with non-traditional um, techniques and lenses. At the time, it was lenses because I was I was shooting digital now, and um, and it just opened up a whole new world for me. So that uh, th- those exposures that I had gotten along the way to something not National Geographic fly on the wall type perspective um, ended up uh, kind of culminating with with my digital photography when I could I could take as many pictures as I wanted and not spend a dollar click anymore and uh, just started putting all sorts of crazy lenses in front of my camera and and that was the beginning. So how do you go from that to turning that into a real business? A lot of paradigm shifts and not very much sleep. <laughs> So yeah. it, it really, for me, was about, um, I, I, was, I was making these pictures and enough other photographers were seeing what I was doing and had no idea how I did it. And, and when they'd find out that I had made a lens to, to create or I had, you know, initially put, put um, wide angle converters in front of my, my prime lenses to, to create something crazy and whacked out. Uh, they would want that, you know, and I couldn't really, I could point them in the direction of, of, uh, the wide angle converters on eBay, but you never knew quite what you were going to get. Um, but what happened was I, I ended up ordering tons and tons of lenses or going to local camera stores and getting boxes of old 120 folding cameras and taking the lenses off and adapting them, um, using shop back hose, uh, to, to, snap those into a body cap, put the lens on the end and, and then would give them or sell them to my friends, uh, who, who wanted to, to do the same kind of work that I was doing, uh, with, with non-traditional lens lenses. And, uh, and I realized that it just, that, that was too much. It was, it was, uh, it was taking more time than my photography was. And pretty much everybody that saw what I was doing wanted one. And, <laughs> So I decided to start a company around it. Wow. Would you say the lenses you create reflect your vision, your own personal vision? Well, they're certainly part of my vision. Um, I, when I'm out shooting and uh, still shoot professionally uh, today, I will, I will shoot about 5 to 10% of, uh, of my images using non-traditional optics, mostly lens babies. And, um, and when I'm out personally shooting, sometimes that's 90% of, of my images are shot with, with lens babies. And so it, it has, it has increased my, uh, my ability to, to, to show the world, uh, to show more of the world that I couldn't in a compelling way, uh, with, with straight lenses that were, were traditionally good. Uh, and I, I put air air quotes around good because that's been defined by the big manufacturers as, um, as being that edge to edge sharpness. And certainly there, that can be arguably good, um, because you're removing things that, uh, aren't what you see with your eyes. Um, but you're also adding a lot of perfection that, that our eyes would never pick up, uh, to, to images. And, um, and I, I think in a lot of situations, perfect lenses make make images more sterile. Uh, I would agree with that. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting thing to go, especially having shot film 
through 2000 uh, exclusively film and then to go to digital to all these perfect lenses that I had on film, at least they had that organic uh, filter that they were going through to be shot on film. And then you've got the grain, you've got the process, you've got the color correction, you've got the, the palette that, that that film is mm -hmm. all doing organically through a technology that just blows my mind. Um, and then all of a sudden it's, it's just, it's ones and zeros. And especially in those first, first cameras, it, it didn't feel right. It, you couldn't, easily make those images feel as if they had life to them um, because you're taking that perfect lens you're putting it on now a sensor that was interpreting perfection in a certain way um, and we didn't have the tools to come back in with filters and and add things that that would would get it closer to what that film looked before so it, it was kind of a crisis point uh, to, to realize that hey I can shoot all the pictures I want but I want them to, to have life and, and they just didn't at first. Yeah. I mean, how many times do we go into Lightroom or, or a Photoshop or whatever? Yeah. And add imperfection back in. I mean, sure. I've been doing that a ton lately. Yeah. Yeah. And it, for me, anything bigger than an eight by 10, I'm always adding film grain to it. Um, just, it gives your eyes a place to go. And, and I'll go back to my D30 images that were shot on a three megapixel camera. Uh, I've mm -hmm. blown those up to 30 by 40 and you add a little film grain to it and you don't see, you don't see the, the, um, pixelization. You don't see the things that aren't quite sharp anymore because your eyes are picking up the, the detail in, in that grain. So there's a lot of ways to get around that. Um, and certainly there's a lot of filters that can make your, your lenses look more, uh, organic and whatnot after the fact. Um, but for me, it started with, with actual optics and, and getting the effects that, uh, that I could out in the real world. So our listeners obviously are street photographers. Of course, they're photographers too. I mean, they just don't do street photography, but in terms of shooting on the street, capturing the moment, what's a good lens from your collect that would be, be good for somebody to try, to do something different, something new? Well, the easiest lens to pick up with Lens Baby, because there's certainly a, uh, a learning curve with all of our lenses, um, and, and get compelling images quickly, would be the Lens Baby Soul. And that's a f for the... For everything except micro four thirds, it's a 45 millimeter sweet spot lens that you can um, you can adjust the the shape of the out of focus areas with the bokeh blades that you can twist and turn and and move into place or move them out of place to get just really smooth uh, oval type um, out of focus areas and then. Uh, and then the Sol 22 for Micro Four Thirds. So that's that would be the my first recommendation, just because it's a great place to step into the into the brand. And uh, right now we're actually having a sale. Thirty, uh, it's our first sale on this at 100. And, I think it's 169 dollars. Um, so it's it's a it's an easy way into the brand. Um, and uh, that that sale is just for February. Um, <clears throat> And then after that, I would say if you if you uh, want to move beyond that sweet spot uh, of photography, which the Soul does so well, which is kind of the signature look, which 
harkens back to our original Lens Baby and the Lens Baby 2.0 that came out in uh, 2004 and 2005. I would say that the Edge 50 would be my my choice uh, for street photography uh, because it gives you a slice of focus when you're tilted, so you you can kind of follow that slice. It's not autofocus; um, none of our lenses are, but you can follow that slice to put it exactly where you want in your image. Um, and it's a little easier for me after a lot of practice uh, to to quickly determine where my focus is on uh, the edge optics, the edge 80 and the edge 50, um, than it is to um, to do so with the sweet spot lenses like the the Sol 45, which which are great. And what's great about the Sol lenses is that uh, you can you can lock them so that they're pointed straight ahead, so only the center's in focus, which mm-hmm. it's easy to get lost with the composer as far as where your tilt is and where things are moving around. So really long answer. First thing would be the Sol 45 and then the, the Edge Edge 50. Since I have you on the phone, I'm going to ask you a question. This is a personal question. I moved to um, mirrorless years ago. I switched from Canon to Fuji. I uh-huh. sold all my uh, L glass and everything. So I, I basically shoot all Fuji now. But there was one lens that I had with Canon that I couldn't let go of that I still have, but I can't use it. Well, I, I still have a Canon body, but is the uh, 85.18. I love it yeah. for uh, for portraits. Mm-hmm. So one thing I have my eye on in your collection is is the Velvet 85. Yeah. Because I was thinking of just, just getting a good manual focus lens, because mainly I use it for portraiture, and I don't really need autofocus. Sure. Would, would that be a good move for somebody like me? That's, that's, a, great, that's a great lens. Now, um, I guess my first question for you is, uh, are you shooting your, your 85.18 on a full-frame camera? No. No, You're not. it's on a crop sensor. Yeah. Okay, so the, then it'd be perfect because it'd be a, um, you know, the, what you're used to in terms of the, the compression and whatnot uh, that you're used to. So the the Velvet eighty five is a phenomenal portrait lens, and and what it's going to give you that that your eighty five one eight doesn't is at one eight you're going to get uh, sharp underlying detail uh, with with velvety glow over the details. Um, you know, surrounding. So you're going to have kind of a halo around all your highlights and, um, and then also a little bit around the shadows as well. But, but that underlying detail is there. Uh, and you can, you can program out, you can turn the, the aperture down to F4 and remove like 90 plus percent of that, that glow. So you get the prime lens effect at F4 and darker. And then from, you know, f2.8, f2, and f1.8, you get increasing amount of lens baby effect. All of our lenses have an effect. We're, we're all about creative effects at lens baby and giving you something that has been programmed out of lenses traditionally uh, to get them, to make them perfect. And we're reintroducing those, those imperfections as, as features that you can control. And so it's really important for us that you're, you're able to, to vary that effect and with the velvet 85 that's one of our most versatile lenses it also gives you uh one to two uh macro focusing so you're able to get down to half life size uh, without any accessories that's really nice so if you want to lose the halo effect you just stop it down a little bit correct yeah Hmm. here comes another another piece of gear 
<laughs> Why not? Um, one thing I'd like to talk to you about, uh, I, I read an article of yours uh, about reinventing yourself. Uh-huh. And it sounds like you've done that many times. Yes, I have. We hear from people a lot who struggle with their photography. They either hit a wall and can't get to the next level. I hear things a lot like, all my street photographs look the same. And I feel like I'm doing the same thing over and over again. And I just wonder what advice you could give photographers who are experiencing that. I'm sure you've struggled with it yourself over the years. Sure. Yeah, I, I would say the first thing is that that dissatisfaction is a really good sign. Because if I had been satisfied with what I was doing, um, I would have continued to do what I was doing and, and not innovated. And, and it, it, Lens Baby ended up becoming my career. And I moved my creativity from photography primarily into product design and optical design, which I, I, I don't do the technical side of, but I direct optical designers to, to create things that haven't been out there. I mean, just what I was talking about of that, that underlying sharp detail at 1.8, that's a, that's a really tough feat for soft focus lenses. A lot of soft focus lenses just aren't sharp, period, at when, when they're glowy, and to be able to get that combination in there. So, so to be able to take that technical aspect along with my photographic knowledge uh, and combine you know, my dissatisfaction with what's in the market for me has, has helped me to create products that just have never existed before. Now, so, so first thing is great sign if you're dissatisfied with the pictures you're taking. And then, uh, and then the next thing is how are you going to press, how are you going to move that needle to where, to a place where, where you're uncomfortable for a reason. And mm -hmm. like, like whether that's laying down in the middle of an intersection and <laughs> in, you know, and, Umbria in, in Italy and, and waiting for people to walk by as profiles and birds and towers are, uh, surround you for, you know, minutes on end. That's that's an uncomfortable thing if you've if if you're conscious of, of the way you're being observed. Um, I, I say I say this a little bit from experience because that was something I did in Italy. And um, but is there is there something that's going to make you uncomfortable uh, that that could cause that dissatisfaction with what you're doing, with what you're familiar with, um, to to break, and that there could be um, there could be something next for you that uh, that that you couldn't even imagine. I think that, um, yeah. So so I guess that would be where I would start is is to you know say I I don't like what I'm doing. That's a great sign, and then. Uh, how can I make myself uncomfortable in ways that might result in in something new? Push the envelope. Keep showing up. Yeah, yeah, and and it is. I mean, street photography by definition, well, anything new by definition is uncomfortable. You're for me. I remember working in college and and just having this was at a small liberal arts school that with like three thousand students, and and I felt uncomfortable. At, going up to people that I'd just taken their pictures of picture at an event where they knew I was taking their picture and I was 10 feet away and just asking them for their name. And then to be able to, to build a quick rapport with someone on the street and, and get an image of, that's meaningful. Um, I'm, 
I'm looking at the uh, November 2018th issue and, and just a beautiful portrait of a bearded gentleman with mm-hmm. a, just a super tons of character in his hat and his eyes. I mean, that takes, that p- takes building rapport. And I suspect that a lot of people that consider them street photog- themselves street photographers uh, are out there taking pictures without building that rapport and mm-hmm. and they're taking pictures without the knowledge of of the their subject uh, which which I think is appropriate at times but stepping in and just starting a conversation showing interest in someone uh, and then with the goal of asking them can I take your picture that's that's a, a place of discomfort. That's a place to say, is something going to come out of this? I've never done this before. Uh, that may be a step for some of your your uh, readers and probably has been a step for a, a lot of other readers. It's a huge step. It's one many people never take. But when you do it, the outcome is usually very, very good. Well, and it's very different than than when, when you're just taking a fly on the wall and being an observer without without that collaboration of the the subject yeah and as a photojournalist i mean you have to do that right you have to get right. their name and yep you have to write the caption and so do you miss being a photojournalist uh, i do that was some of the most exciting work of my life because uh because i got good at it and when i when i worked in in weekly newspapers i when i first started i i I had composition down. I could do sports photography, uh, but I I had a real hard time anticipating a moment, seeing a moment that hadn't happened yet, and being ready for it, uh, especially in new situations. And so, working, I was the the sole photographer and. Uh, lab tech for um, actually they had lab techs for some of the other papers, but I was the sole photographer for seven weekly newspapers in, and I started that job in 91. Um, and so I had all, anything that I had time to, to do that, that didn't cut into my, uh, schedule for, for printing for the paper. I, I would go out and volunteer for those jobs. And, and otherwise the, the writers would go out with, with cameras and come back with picture pictures from, from the shoots. And so I got the opportunity to, um, to just have a huge array of, of, you know, everything from spot news and covering house fires where people had died to, you know, bridge building contests with toothpicks for, you know, a, a grade school. And, <clears throat> and some of these, some of these, um, assignments really turned into something unexpected, but it caused me to go out and say, okay, I'm, I'm here for sometimes five, 10 minutes and I know this is going to be in the newspaper with my name under it. What am I going to do uh, to to make sure that I get something significant that tells the story? And uh, and you know, I'd say the majority of time it's, I didn't, but uh, it it was certainly motivation to to get better at that. Yeah, what a way to develop a strong photographic instinct, for for lack of a better term, than to be a photojournalist because you have to deliver the goods every day. Absolutely. I mean, and you're shooting all the time. Yep. Yep. And, and I, you know, I still remember some of those pictures that one shot front page of the Oregonian, it was huge and I knew it was going to be huge. And they sent me out to it knowing that it was a non-subject. It was, it was just 
there was nothing they're they're like we just have to have something to fill the spot and my name was under it and it was a nothing photo and those that again that goes back back to that dissatisfaction of okay here's here's a nine inch wide photo on the center of the oregonian on a really slow news day that they sent me out uh to take knowing that i was probably going to fail i failed you know i filled the spot um, but that drove me to say, okay, how am I going to do this better next time? How am I going to, you know, be, be more prepared? Uh, and you know, it, it, photojournalism for me, there was a big motivation around recognition. So if there was a, if there was a photo that my friends and family were going to see with my name under it, I wanted it to be good. So how does that attitude of not being good enough and how do I get better? How does that carry over into the lens business? To contrast that constant creative process and being able to to learn on the on the fly in photography, when I when my creative juices went towards creating products and creating lenses, um, now we're lucky if we get three products out a year, and so it's a completely different type of process for me. So my goal is to put as many things into the hopper to where whatever we choose is is going to have a better chance of being something compelling for the user, uh, something I'm excited to work on. Um, so what I do is I I come in and I basically ideate. I'm I'm coming in with ideas about mainly mechanical um, innovations, and sometimes it's questions that I have to work with optical engineers on to see if something's possible. Most of the time, it's not, um, but every once in a while, they they come back and and sometimes it's a year later that they come back and say, "Oh yeah, we we actually can do that." I'm still crossing my fingers and knocking on wood that I've I've spoken this out out loud now that I haven't jinxed uh, the dozen ideas out there that I hope uh, are coming back to us, but um, that that's a much slower burn than with photography. And so uh, when I do get a chance to go back to photography, it, it, it's a huge um, creative outlet for me that, that reminds me that, okay, these things can be realized quickly uh, and can, you can get that satisfaction from it. Cause honestly we can come out with two or three products in a year and only one of them uh, even gets receptive, you know, a recep- a good reception from, the audience and and from our customers and so you know not only am i only creating a few things over the course of of months um that that ever see the light of day but uh but yeah that when when they nobody buys them then then it can be kind of discouraging yeah especially if you have them sitting on the shelf yeah (laughs) so you said you you're still a commercial photographer I still do commercial work occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not, you know, maybe once a month I'll do I'll do jobs. I'm I'm usually relieving my my fellow photojournalists and commercial photographer friends that that need me to come in and spell them when when they're out of town or whatnot. But uh, but I, I I still come in and and do uh, commercial work when and and wedding work whenever I can. Are you finding it hard to to split your mind up between the two? different uh, types of work i i would if i had to do the business end of things and that's uh-huh. why i'm not i'm not working directly with the clients so i will work uh through 
through my friends. I work with Alan Weiner here in town uh, most often, and uh, the fact that he's willing to do the the business side uh, that that took me a ton of effort. And mm-hmm. uh, as as a a studio owner, and um, it you know I was lucky if twenty percent of my time was spent shooting and oh, yeah. now it's pretty much all shooting and and i'll do a i'll do edits and and upload but but uh, i just send them a bill and don't have to deal directly with the client i hear that from a lot of people yeah yeah we're you know i if i were to do anything different i would go back and and take business classes in college um you know it, it was the the furthest from my mind mm-hmm. and my dad always told me that the his biggest regret was that he didn't take business classes um and it just went right over my head um of course. but but i would i would do that in a heartbeat and and cons- have considered going back to get uh, more education just just because it serves the, you know, it serves the left side. It serves the right side of my brain to, to, to allow me to be creative, and it gives me a container, or it would, um, where I, I also can feel adequate and feel uh, capable of, of supporting the creative side with, with the things that need to get done. So you're in, well, you're in Portland, Portland, Oregon. Yep. Do you actually manufacture the lenses in Oregon? We assemble the lenses here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do some light manufacturing in terms of, of machine work, um, but most everything comes to us ready to assemble. Um, the The optics themselves come from Asia, and mm-hmm. the metal and plastic that go into our, our lenses uh, come from both local suppliers here around Portland and, um, and overseas. You know, I, I would love to make 100% portland made lens you know maybe even inside of of lens baby and and uh um you know we can we can freeze um freeze water and make lenses out of it so but i don't know how sellable that would be um <laughs> uh, and and we've got a 3d printer here in in uh our office that uh that makes optically clear prints and you can make lenses out of that you can find tutorials for how to do that online hmm. um you know, it's it's not repeatable, but it's it's a novelty that you could actually print something and uh, and make it out of it. And we've got we've got a CNC machine that I could easily make a, a lens profile on. I in fact, I think you've just inspired me. Later today, I'm gonna I'm gonna make myself a, a 24 element zoom lens and out of uh, 3D printed and CNC polished uh, plastic parts. Um, so you stay tuned. That sounds cool. I was um, I was reading an article. I think it was last week. It was about Apple making the uh, the Mac Pro in Austin. They use very specific screws, and they can't get the screws. Really? Yeah. And they had they dealt with a uh, I think somebody in the Houston area. The president of the company would actually drive the screws to them in Austin, and <laughs> in small batches because they just couldn't couldn't make enough of them. Yeah. Huh. We're, we're going to be in trouble over this someday. Oh, it's, it's, yeah. If, if globalization um, has to, has to take three or four steps back, we're not going to have the same access to uh, the things that, that we're used to for a while. Like mm-hmm. as far as gearing back up as a manufacturing economy uh, and being able to do that in a way that, that anybody makes money it's it's going to be tough. Yeah, it was funny. That was a surprise to me. I mean, I 
come from a place where there are lots of specialty screw manufacturers, and that's in the northern Ohio area. Mm-hmm. I guess they're not there anymore. Nope, nope. It's uh, it's pretty much, and the same is true for optics. Like optics in in America are are made, you know, incredibly precise, but they're done for chip manufacturers, and mm-hmm. so you know, a piece of glass that that we're needing to spend a few dollars on might cost $250 to manufacture here in the U S or at best, maybe 20 or 30, um, you know, 10 X what that piece of glass needs to cost for, for our photographers to be able to have a lens that uh, they can afford. So who's making the the good glass now? Is it the Chinese or Japanese? You know, uh, um, yeah, Chinese, Japanese, um, most of the manufacturing period that that has is not cutting edge is the the best stuff you you can get some of the best stuff in china um and you know they they learn very quickly and and gear up their their processes and they've got their government um subsidizing factories and and uh it's it's quite it's quite the uh quite the machine they've got going over there and and they'll do exactly what you tell them to do and it's which is often not what you can expect from from suppliers in the u.s unfortunately that's interesting china's quite a place yeah my daughter lived there for about four years as a journalist yeah and where was she she was in beijing okay it was pretty interesting very industrious place it is it is it's uh it's changed a lot. Um, I went there. I, I had chills at one point when I was on a bus ride, and there was this literally mile-long billboard that was probably 150 feet tall and going across the top of this hill that we were driving past. And what was the words it said? I have a picture of it somewhere. Um <laughs> It basically said the only good is progress, and it, it had just this mile-long skyline of of um, of buildings, and it was saying that that's what the state was throwing its weight behind was we we are our our own our all of our efforts are going to be to developing our country, developing our infrastructure to um, manufacturing to the industrial age. And uh, it was it was chilling. And, and the president's picture was there on the, uh, you know, at the end um, of, of that statement. And it's like, wow, um, you know, but but they it's a machine and and they're going to get behind it. Um, that's their, you know, and, to, to a great extent, the you would call it a religious. I would call it a religious fervor, having been there multiple times and and seen the the kind of efforts that go into this. You know, and I would say I commented about it's uh, some sometimes you just can't expect the U.S. manufacturers to do what you tell them to do. That's largely because not not because they're not capable, but it's largely because they 
the constraints on being needing to compete with with uh, mm-hmm. overseas. So, you know, you go to good suppliers in the U.S. and they're they're going to do things every bit as as well as the best manufacturers in the world. And they will be the best manufacturers in the world. But but they're under huge constraints because they're competing with uh, new startups in China that that for the most part can can do exactly what what you've asked and and at at a very low cost. Yeah, that's pretty cool that you can go over there and and see all of that firsthand. Yeah, well, it's important for us as a as a organization too. And we're small; we don't we're we're not going to be dealing with um, you know enormous uh, manufacturers that are doing our assembly and whatnot over there. Uh, but but I've been into some shops where I just turned to our supplier and just said we're we're not going to work with these guys um, because it was. It was a sweatshop, and mm-hmm. and so being able to being able to work directly with the suppliers and and meet with them and and go into their their places of work to know that the conditions are uh, are good um, and that their people are being treated well and in good conditions um, that's that's important to us. So before we go, I've got to ask you one more question. Okay, what's a chief creative officer? Oh, chief creative. That, that officer. sounds like a great job. There's a few of us out there. It's not. I'm not the first. Um, but for for me, I am coming in as the creator of the product, and um, and I do have a couple things to say about marketing or or things that go out there. But that's not my primary job. Um, my role here is to to come in and say how do we as a company be creative in a way that impacts the the photographs that our, our users can take. Um, there, we want to give you tools that allow you to see the world in ways that you've never seen before. And, and it's, it's a, it's a, it's a great title. Um, but there's a lot of pressure there too, because if, if I've got, if I've got this, uh, pressure to, to always be creating something new, everyone, everyone in, in a creative role gets that, um, writer's block or uh that block that keeps them from from being able to to come up with the thing that they're supposed to be coming up with at that moment um but but that's my challenge and that's my goal is to 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 be out there to make make things that allow you to be creative in ways that you couldn't be before you sound like the steve jobs of the lens business well i hope so that that sounds good to me so, well, Craig, well, I tell you, thank you very much. Appreciate you taking the time. You're welcome, Bob. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Tell us, where can people find you? Uh, you can go to lensbaby.com. Uh, you can go to B&H, Adorama. Um, there's, we've, got, uh, we've got a couple of groups on Facebook. If you do Facebook, which um, there's, uh, let's see, Lens Baby Unplugged is a great great place to to come in and share your images with the community uh lens baby addicts lens baby artistry um, each one has a different flavor and uh, a little different grouping of of people that that invest a lot of time there to really help people get through that learning curve and um and start making images that they just can't with their regular gear. I mean, it's a whole new way of seeing the seeing the world. Each each lens baby sees it a little differently, and each photographer sees their world a little differently. And hopefully, there's some overlap there with our lenses that they can't find with with the stuff they're already using. 
Did you start these groups or were these formed by fanboys? Lens Baby Artistry and Lens Baby um, Addicts was were started by our our users and then we started lens baby unplugged to give a little bit more of the the um support and involvement from the the lens baby team here in portland very nice well we'll put those in the show notes all right thank you all right and if you're looking for me you can find me personally at bobpatterson.me that's me or obviously at streetphotographymagazine.com I'm always there. I never sleep. So, okay, Craig, well, thank you. Well, thank you, Bob. It, you, you put out a great product, and, and I'm, I'm excited to, to be part of it. So um, appreciate it.